everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happier History. I'm your host, Professor Harpin. I wanted to do a short episode again since it's summer and I told you all I'd do like short, you know, snippet episodes. And um, later I can go into maybe more detail about this if um, anyone's interested. But I wanted to talk about the Zapatistas' demands and the working conditions that they were subjected to and how that was related in the early 20th century to the living conditions in the Jim Crow South for Black Americans. Now, for those who don't know, the Zapatistas were the revolutionaries, that's the name that they called themselves, the revolutionaries in Mexico, who were protesting their working and living conditions. And being indigenous, and likely some of them also having some African descent, they were seen as the burden of their society in Mexico. So... Just to give you um, a side bit of history, social Darwinism, which a lot of you are probably familiar with, was used to justify the mistreatment of, you know, non-Anglo-Saxon peoples. So, um, and also people who were Irish. So that would include um, black people, Asians, indigenous descended people, etc. And they used a lot of phrenology and, you know, what they considered to be science to justify why we were not as intellectually capable, as leadership oriented as whites, particularly white men, and why the women of those communities didn't have the same beauty as European Anglo-Saxon descended women. I should actually probably do it, um, an episode about that too. But anyway, so staying on this, that's important. So social Darwinism was adopted into the Latin American countries because, again, understanding that many of the people who were left in power were European descended from Spain. Spain is in Europe, so Spanish people are white. And they just use that same social Darwinism onto their population. So the Asian descended, the native indigenous descended, and the black descended people within Latin America would then be seen as the burden on their societies, just like those same groups of people ethnically and racially were the burden of the United States, England, etc. So back to Mexico. During the Porfiriato, which is, you know, the term of the time period, but it was the presidency of Porfirio Diaz, so that's where the name comes from. The people in charge claimed their Spanish ancestry, positioned them in the social Darwinist spectrum as being the natural-born leaders. So that meant, in their minds, like I said, that the indigenous-descended and African-descended Mexicans were inherently beneath them. And that was... And that it was all right to deny those people their human rights as well as equality and equity within their own nation. So some of those things that they dealt with were lack of access to government jobs, making less money than um, their American workers, than the American workers who immigrated there to work for the American corporations that owned land within Mexico. They were subject to being dragged out of their homes if they were not at work. They were being paid sometimes the equivalent of 25 cents per day for a whole day's worth of labor. Some of them were being paid in vouchers by the hacendados, which are hacienda owners, which is just a a Spanish term for plantation. Like we call it a plantation, they would call it a hacienda. And 
So they couldn't spend their money after working. They couldn't spend their money where they wanted. And they could also be and were often beaten up for showing any displeasure in their working conditions or having any um, resistance to the, you know, the society and how they were ordered in it. So likewise, in the American South, the African-American population was dealing with similar working and living conditions. So many of them were forced to remain in agricultural or, agricultural or domestic-made jobs, and they weren't able to get government jobs or even join unions because most unions were whites only, and the same thing with government jobs. And they also were being paid unfair wages compared to their white counterparts. They were also forced to legally hold a contract job or else they could be taken to jail for the crime of unemployment. And contract job just meaning that there's a contract which stipulates how long they're supposed to be working for this employer. And in the South, these examples, well, these were examples of de jure segregation. So segregation by law which was stipulated in the Black Codes, which if you've taken my class, we've talked a lot about. And those Black Codes ran from 1865 until 1965. So I'm not sure in Mexico if there were legal codes of exclusion, but the point remains that there are still similarities in how both groups of people were being treated by larger society and also by the government. So both were seen, like we said, as the burden of their regions, both happening to be in the southern parts of their country. So like the southern U.S., central and southern Mexico is where these um, in Mexico, these these populations are being taken advantage of. So I think that's really interesting that they're both in the southern part of their country and both groups actively protested their experiences. Now, neither country, Mexico nor the United States, could have built their economy and conducted business on the world stage without those populations that they subjugated. And that's very important because just like in the U.S., we say that, you know, the American economy could not have taken off without black labor, which was free for 400 years and then kept very low wages through the 1970s. And then again, still not completely made fair until the late 1980s. It's the same thing within, well, and it's still not fair today, but it's the same thing within Mexico and many other Latin American countries. Like without the indigenous and black descended populations, they wouldn't have been able to continue their economy the way that they did and to become a world um, power with regard to importing and exporting materials, especially within North America, right? And the relationship that Mexico and the United States has always had, and I've talked about this in a previous podcast, and no matter what the news tries to tell you about Mexicans as a national group, a national group of people, or um, culturally within the United States with Mexican-Americans, we have a mutually beneficial relationship between the two countries, and that is not going to stop. Too much money is moved across the border for the U.S. to ever cut Mexico off. And um, I have previous podcasts about that, so you can look those up if you want to hear me go into more detail about that. So back to the Zapatistas and what was going on in the Jim Crow South. So both groups led revolutionary protests against their local and federal government to change how they were being treated. The Mexican Revolution, if you're if you are familiar with it, then you know how important it was. And if you're not, you should definitely look that up. But the Mexican Revolution lasted from November 1910 to May, I think, 1920. 
And if you're interested in the topic, you can watch this film for free on YouTube called The Storm That Swept Mexico. So if you just type in The Storm That Swept Mexico, it's the first thing that comes up, (laughs) which is great because it's easy to find. You can also look up a painting by David Siqueiros called Dance of the Millions. I guess I forgot to mention that the United States owned land in Mexico a lot through the Diaz regime and... um, the U.S., um, the, excuse me, the amount of land that United States corporations and wealthy individuals from the U.S. owned in Mexico was more land than even Mexican citizens owned in their own country. Now, Porfirio Diaz was instrumental for allowing this to happen, and after the revolution, Mexico nationalized many, many parts of industry and put term limits on Americans' ability to buy land within the country. So today, there are long-term leases. I believe it's a 99-year lease is what they have today, but that's where it stems from. Because in the, you know, a couple generations ago, you as an American citizen with money could just buy land in Mexico, of course, because it was still, you know, cheaper comparatively. And so you had a lot of wealthy Americans who would move to Mexico to buy land or even, you know, stable merchant class Americans who would buy land in Mexico and it was theirs permanently. But after the revolution, they said, nah, we're not doing that. <laughs> like, this isn't in the best interest of our citizens. So you can own the land, but it's on a lease, right? So after 99 years, you have to renew it. Now, I don't know what that process is. If you have to pay another fee or if it, you know, if, if it gets extended for another 99 years, but you don't, it's not just, okay, one done, paid for, it's yours for eternity and you can pass it down to your kids. Like it doesn't work like that to my knowledge anymore. And that's where that stems from. And a little bit more about the nationalization of industry within Mexico Um, If you have been into Mexico, you may have seen, or even if not, but if you've seen ads for Mexican national companies like Banamex, Pemex, all that, right? Those are Mexican Petroleum, Pemex, uh, Bank of Mexico, Banamex. So that is um, the result of the revolution and nationalizing the industry. So Black Americans were not given land as a result of the civil rights demonstrations Within the South or in the other parts of the country, there's a long history, especially in California uh, and in the South for sure, but even in places like California, of black landowners being kicked off of their land, imminent domain being used as the reason why they take land from black communities and displace them and then build like a white, a whites only metropolis or a tourist area on that land, etc. So there's a long history of that. So black Americans were not given any land as a result of the civil rights demonstrations. And it's important to note that they were promised land at the end of slavery in the United States in 1865 and into the Reconstruction era. The descendants of slaves and the people who had been enslaved were guaranteed land. And it was and it was never given to them. They were never given land. They were never given any sort of financial compensation, which they were legally entitled to. But because of the failure of Reconstruction, you know, Andrew Johnson not being on board, the government never paying on the promise, even up to now, it's never happened. And I don't mean to say that things were necessarily solved in Mexico either for the 
poor, the indigenous, and the Afro-Mexicans. But what I do mean is that part of the revolutionary gains was focused on land reform and to redistribute land out of the hands of foreigners and out of the hands of like wealthy citizens who owned, you know, hundreds of millions of acres of land that they weren't doing anything with besides just being the deed holders to. So that stopped people from being able to access little parcels of land so that they could have more self-determination, self-determination within their own country. We have not had a movement like that in the United States yet. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and stop this episode. I know this is really short, (laughs) but I hope everyone's having a great week and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.